0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As the nation confronts social justice issues, the calls for reform and healing continue. Valerie Jarrett, former senior advisor to former President Barack Obama, joined the Washington Post to discuss these most pressing issues and what solutions can be implemented.
1: Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Karen Tumulty and I'm a columnist here at The Washington Post and I want to thank all of you who are joining us this morning for our conversation with really one of the leading voices in this country on racial racial justice, Valerie Jarrett. Uh, most of you probably know her as one of President Obama's top advisors, but in fact, Valerie's work on these issues goes back all the way to her days in the Chicago mayor's office. And so she is really the perfect person to be talking to at this particular moment in our history. So I'd like to welcome Valerie and also congratulate you on the recent publication in paperback of your New York Times bestseller, Finding My Voice.
0: Thank you Um, so much. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: So I want to ask you, first of all, about what we had something really extraordinary happen yesterday um, with the testimony of George Floyd's brother on Capitol Hill. It was it was emotional. It really it put a life story to this tragedy in front of us. What was your reaction?
0: Well, I was in tears. I was deeply moved. First, how brave of him so soon after his brother's death right after the funeral, to be able to compose himself, to really tell the story and and help people understand that this was a man with a family that loved him, with a life, that he was just an extraordinary human being to his family. And I think that part of what we need here is a sense of empathy and appreciating the value of all of our lives. And Balani has described it in a way that uh, moved me and moved, I think, millions of people around the country and, and around the world. It was. Quite, quite a testimony.
1: Uh, you know, the, the statement that he made, I think that stuck with me more than any other, was where he said he wa- didn't want his brother to be just another face on a T-shirt, just another name in a list that keeps getting longer. Um, you know, as President Obama said, you too have said that this is a moment that actually has you feeling optimistic. What is it about this particular man's, death and his life that makes you feel that, in fact, things could change.
0: Well, the reaction to it, and I am smiling because I was thinking about his six-year-old daughter on a friend of his shoulder saying, my daddy changed the world. And I hope she's right. And look, I am old enough, Karen, to remember the civil rights movement of the 60s and how folks took to the streets. And you think about the Montgomery uh, boycotts lasted over a year. So we know change takes time. But what we're seeing today in our country, of all 50 states, people of all ages, of all races, of all backgrounds, day after day, saying we have to change. And then the reaction so quickly, we've had numerous cities who have banned the chokehold. We've had states such as California and New York do it. We have, for the first time in a very long time, Congress actually contemplating bipartisan legislation. And so I do think there is momentum. But the question is, Will this inflection point actually be the beginning of a turning point? And that, to me, means we have to keep up the pressure. And we are seeing results, not only the changes in legislation, but Keith Ellison, who I, the the attorney general for Minnesota, I had the pleasure of working with very closely when he was a member of Congress, to so swiftly bring charges against the four officers involved in George Floyd's death, speaks volumes to how public officials are looking at this opportunity now to do what needs to be done. And, and and the good news here is that there's a lot of research to show what does and can work. And the question is only is there the political will. And so I hope these peaceful demonstrations keep up. And I hope we hold our elected officials at both the local, state, and federal level accountable.
1: Well, one thing that's come forward as, as a sort of rallying cry in all of this is, is the phrase, defund the police. You've expressed some reservations about that. and and also the you've suggested that the issue here should not be less money for the police. it It should be more. Can you explain again, why you think this this is not necessarily the the cause that that um, these demonstrators should be embracing at the moment and what you think should be done?
0: Sure. So I think that a democracy does require law and order. And the question and the reason why so many people are so upset is is that justice, and justice is not being meted out in a just way, in a fair way, in an equitable way. And so I think every mayor, every city council annually should be looking at their budget and saying, does our budget reflect the values and the needs of the people we're here to represent? The reason why I said in some cases it should have more money is, so for example, I think there is a uniform agreement that we should have... Uh, Better background checks on police officers, a national registry, that's gonna take some money to stand up. Tamir Rice, who was killed in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, was killed by an officer who had been fired from a suburban uh, police force, Independence, Ohio, and the folks in Cleveland didn't know about it. Well, we should be able to do background checks on all of our officers before we hire them. We should do far more training, both in implicit and unconscious bias, it's a hard job to de-escalate we have to train our officers to de-escalate when they're confronted with um, situations around the country uh, we have to be figuring out what are the what are the what's the equipment that officers need to do their job I think we should have less military equipment more officers walking the streets uh, so they get to know the community for example but on the other hand on the other hand Karen I think that officers are asked to do work that really they're not trained to do so for example, They're frequently called when what we would really need is a social worker to be on the scene. Uh, And yet they're asked to take on responsibilities far broader than their scope. So I think we need to take advantage of this opportunity to take a step back and look at what are the systemic changes that we should be making, what should we be negotiating in the union contracts to ensure that that the direction that we're giving our law enforcement meets the need and meets the demand, and very importantly, is equally needed out. And I should hasten to add that the tensions that we see between police and communities of color, it's a microcosm of society. It's also a microcosm of a bigger issue, which is criminal justice reform writ large, which is in need of a lot of help. We have a very unjust system. 5% of the world's population, 25% of of those incarcerated. We need to take a real hard look at how we are meeting our justice
1: really overall. Well, you know, law enforcement is primarily a state and local issue, but but there's a a real when it comes to sort of changing attitudes and and changing things in in a broader sense, that requires national leadership. Um, And and so there's a component of of social pressure that we're seeing and people demonstrating in the streets, but it's there's also another component which is voting. And, you know, African-American turnout, I think, was pretty disappointing in 2016. It was probably one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton was not elected president. Do you think that's going to change this fall?
0: Well, I sure hope so. I think, uh, as you know, I am chair of the board of When We All Vote, which is a nonpartisan 501c3 organization. And we're trying to close both the race and the uh, age gap disproportionately young people don't vote and they have the most to lose, right? So they should be invested in in making sure that people who represent us actually represent our values and our needs. Uh, we know that there are many examples, Just we saw just two days ago in Georgia, those mm-hmm. long lines of people standing, waiting to exercise their right to vote. So we need to be making it easier and fair and more accessible for every American to vote And uh, those efforts, given the global pandemic that we're all still living under, need to be taking place right now, so we're prepared for November. The other important part of our organization is is that it isn't about one election or one office. So, for example, it matters who are the prosecutors making important decisions about who to prosecute. It matters who's um, the mayor with oversight, for example, of the police department, the city council, the state legislature making important decisions about allocation of resources and certainly Congress and a check and balance to the executive branch. And so this is really an opportunity to, for us to work over the long haul to say, what can we do to change our culture around voting? And so the people are actually educated and informed voters. We would not tell anybody for whom they should vote, but we would say, get engaged. And, and, and in a sense, both the global pandemic and the uh, challenges that we see within law enforcement are in a sense, a civic lesson—a very painful civic lesson—to how important government actually is in all of our lives at every level of government.
1: Is there anything that you think that Vice President Biden ought to be doing that he isn't doing to to connect with these communities? To whether it's within his you know in his organizational efforts or in the kind of message that that he is putting out and that his style of campaigning.
0: I think his message is spot on. I teared up when I heard his remarks the other day. Uh, his his phone call with the family where he listened and was empathetic, his willingness to go down to Houston and be with the family and really talk through ideas for how we can move forward. Um, I think the message and the tone and the authenticity is perfect. I'm also delighted that he's hired some new folks that used to be a part of my team in the White House. He has amazing team that's getting up and running now as he prepares for the general election. And so I have every confidence that he's actually just what our country needs at this moment. And I I hunger for his voice during the campaign. And I sure look forward to him being sworn in on January 20th of next year.
1: Uh, And one of the big decisions he's going to be making in the pretty near future is a running mate. Um, Do you think he needs to choose an African American?
0: This is the thing that I would say about Vice President Biden, having had the job for eight years, he has a pretty good idea of what the job entails, and he has a pretty good idea, I think, of what he's looking for in a running mate. And it's one of the few decisions he gets to make all on his own. And so I trust him to find the person who will not only be an effective partner with him during this campaign, but far more importantly, someone who will help him govern as we emerge from what has been a real crisis for our country. And so I think he is best suited to figure out what that is. And I give him the space to make that decision on his own.
1: You mentioned Georgia, which, you know, was such a disaster on Tuesday um there are a couple of issues here one there you know the the equipment and the that was there at the polling places the the training of the people who were at the polling places who a lot of them are new thanks to the covid epidemic the uh you know a lot of the normal poll workers are are not able to go out and do it they've got new equipment but on top of that georgia is doing a lot more mail in voting i think People, a lot of people on, in both parties think that that is what we really need more of, despite the president's you know claims that are not backed up by evidence that that it would actually open the door to fraud. We have a very, very short time here to get this right. And Georgia would suggest that there might be places that are just not geared up to do this. what What needs to happen right now?
0: Well, the Secretary of State all really need to get their act together and look at Georgia as kind of a test case for a disaster. And the Secretary of State owns that. Uh, the prior Secretary of State, who's now in office, had a terrible election when Stacey Abrams was running. And there were examples of intentional efforts to suppress the vote and to discriminate by purging the rolls in an irresponsible way. So Georgia has a horrible track record. And look, this is not that hard. The military has always voted by mail. There are states all across our country who have voted by mail. mail. One of the bills that we are supporting right now in Congress would give additional resources to the post office to prepare for this influx in mail that's coming in. I have a good friend who lives in New York, requested her absentee ballot months ago from Georgia, never received it after several requests. That cannot happen if we expect our elections to have the integrity to them that is necessary for us to have confidence in the
1: outcome. And what do you think, beyond outside the political spectrum, a lot of corporations uh, and outside organizations are also stepping up and and making, I think, some really powerful statements in this this moment. I mean, NASCAR banning confederate flags was not something I saw coming. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, beyond Beyond our elected leaders, what we're seeing in in the entertainment industry from corporate America, what does that suggest to you?
0: Well, it's a level of activism that we should all welcome. And look, I was on a phone call with a group of business leaders in Chicago last week, and I said, Yes, we do need to support Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's efforts to reform the police department, but we also should be looking at our own house and get our act together. What are we doing to build inclusive Um, Companies that are welcoming to people of color. What are we doing strategically in our hiring to make sure that our workforce reflects the diversity of the marketplace that we are trying to attract? The good news here, Karen, is that a lot of the younger folks, younger folks particularly, are shopping their values and putting pressure on on companies. We just saw yesterday a couple of large employers um, who are now discontinuing advertising on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox because of the rhetoric that he. The spouses, and I think that is all healthy. And LeBron James focusing now on voter registration within the African-American community. There are great examples, a company yesterday, well actually there's several companies now that are giving their workers the day off on election day because we know many times people can't afford to take the day off to go vote. So I think it is an opportunity for us to all take a step back, listen to the people around us who are who are African-American, take guidance from them, There are examples of people who say I am not a racist who still um, go through microaggressions directed at African-American people, and they may not even be aware of it. I'm on the board of Lyft, great company. Uh, Before anyone at Lyft is allowed to hire, they have to go through implicit bias training. Why? Because we all have implicit biases, and oftentimes there's unconscious biases. And so the more we listen to folks and see how our behavior is impacting them. The more empathetic we are, which is what I think we're seeing all around this country with so many people who are not people of color who are out there demonstrating, shows that we actually can be better than we have been. And so that's where my hopefulness and optimism comes from. But this is hard work. Change isn't easy. And you know, we were all about hope and change. No one said those words were easy. And it requires uh, effort and resilience and tenacity And when you see, again, coming back to George Floyd's brother, Polonius, yesterday, you know, he can do that. What can the rest of us do?
1: Well, before we go, I'd like to to bring in a couple of questions that we got from our audience today Um, from Michael Miller in Florida. He wants to know whether former President Obama will be part of Joe Biden's effort on race if he's elected president.
0: Well, I think what President Obama has made clear from the time of his announcement and all the times that he's spoken publicly about Vice President Biden is that he is there ready to help in any way he can. I think the commencement speeches that both President Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama gave over the weekend sent a strong message about how they intend to use their platform to be a force for good. The foundation that he's created that is Housing, My Brother's Keeper, for example, designed to improve the trajectory of the lives of boys and young men of color, the work that they are both doing around girls' education. Mrs. Obama has an initiative to help adolescent girls stay in school. I think that they are, as they have always been in the almost 30 years since I've known them, I can't believe it's 30 years next year, devoted their lives to service, devoted their lives to uh, moving the ball forward, being a force for good, and there isn't anything I can imagine that Vice President Biden could ask of President Obama that he wouldn't be willing to do uh, should he think it's helpful.
1: And then real quickly before we have to go here, um, Ann Anderson of Rhode Island asked a question that you actually touched on a bit earlier. How can we ensure meaningful and structural change in policing when the police unions are so strong and powerful? And certainly we heard that same that same sentiment voiced yesterday from from the Minneapolis police chief.
0: Yeah, he's called off his negotiations. I think we have to pay attention and there has to be transparency into what goes into these contracts. So for example, there's a young woman, Brittany Packnett, who I knew when she was demonstrating in Ferguson. President Obama put her on his task force for 21st century policing that provides a very clear evidence-based roadmap for the kind of steps we should take to improve this bond of trust. And one of the one of the issues that Brittany brought to my attention is that often in the union contracts, police who are involved in these kinds of, of shootings are prohibited from being interviewed for a period of days. Well, why is that? I mean, why you wouldn't hold off on interviewing anybody else who had committed a alleged crime? Why would police be given a grace period before they are interviewed? It's a. It seems like a small point, but it's an important point, point. and so I think that the business community, the public at large, should be looking at the terms of these police contracts and putting their muscle behind it, because you're right, they are a mighty force, but they also should be held accountable through transparency and through trying to influence these provisions that have a deleterious impact, particularly on uh, African-American communities.
1: Valerie, thank you so much for being with us today. And we'd also like to thank our audience for joining us. Um, Later today at 1215, my colleague David Ignatius will interview the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith. And next week, please join us Monday for an interview with Representative Karen Bass, who is the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Have a terrific day. Stay healthy.